0: Hey, oboists. Have you checked out MKL Reads lately? MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reads where you can try reads from various makers and then select the one that is best for you. How cool is that? Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double space read space dish all caps for free shipping on your first order.
1: Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily you never have to feel that way again. JDW sheet music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download-only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
0: Elite, it is almost Thanksgiving break. Thanksgiving
1: break.
0: (laughs) Can I just tell you that Southeast got rid of fall break. They're thinking about bringing it back, which I'm super excited about.
1: Yeah, fall break is everything.
0: (laughs) You need a fall break and we have not had one. And I know it means we get the whole week off for Thanksgiving, but I'm so excited about it. I'm just like thinking about all the things I'm going to do that I won't possibly have time for in a single week. But you know, <laughs> the fantasy is just as good as the reality, I think.
1: Oh, I love it. Wait, did I tell you that my school does Mardi Gras break in the spring? What? Yeah, we have Mardi Gras break and spring break in the same month. That's crazy. Well, it's the South. Not that the South is crazy. I mean that the South does Mardi Gras. (laughs) Well, yeah, that makes sense. Because I remember when we
0: were in Platteville together, and that was a very Catholic area, they took Good Friday off. And in the Northeast, of course, they take the Jewish high holidays off.
1: Yep. And we do Mardi Gras. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we do fall break, Thanksgiving break, Mardi Gras break, spring break.
0: And meanwhile, I'm just like toiling away like a skeleton
1: at my (laughs) desk. (laughs) Someday a break will come. Your bony fingers are just typing away. <laughs> I'm like
0: halfway hanging out of the window. Like,
1: Help me.
0: Is it break yet?
1: Oh. No, keep working. <laughs> I'm actually really excited over Thanksgiving break. Um, I'm going to play at... Um, the Beau Rivage Casino in Biloxi with uh, Martina McBride for her Christmas show. Oh, wow. Martina (laughs) McBride. I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome.
0: I'm trying to think of one of her songs.
1: (laughs) I I don't know. That I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I just know that everyone's going to love it. And I, I love when the audience gets really into it. And maybe
0: you can, like, stand up and dance with your oboe while you're
1: <laughs> jamming You know what, Jackie? Out. I will. You're like, it's not
0: Mardi Gras break, but I'm dancing anyway.
1: <laughs> oh, so anyway, this is not the topic of our dish.
0: <laughs> this isn't a Martina McBride-themed episode?
1: <laughs> it should be, but it's not. Jackie, would you like to introduce our theme for our dish today?
0: Well, I guess I was trying to quickly Google Martina McBride songs, so I might make a pun, but if you want to <laughs> rush me, then I guess I won't. <laughs> um, so we, you had the idea to talk about difficult to receive, but profoundly valuable advice. So kind of those hard
1: truths. So when I was a freshman, um, I was a double major, performance and music education, And I loved my lessons. I loved all the performance stuff. And I just didn't really like the music ed stuff. It just didn't sit well with me. It wasn't a good fit. So I made the decision at the end of the spring semester that I was going to drop the music ed major and just be a performance major. And I had told some of my friends and... After Wind Ensemble one day, one of the doctoral Wind Ensemble GAs came up to me and pulled me aside and said, look, I heard you're dropping Music Ed. I think this is the biggest mistake of your life. You are not in any way good enough to be a performance major. I think that you're really going to flop and you need to change your mind and do Music Ed. Drop the performance and just do Music Ed. (laughs) I was 18 years old and this guy that I barely knew was like telling me my life story. (laughs) and I was like, the reason that this was profoundly valuable was I was lit on fire, so offended and just practiced like crazy Mm. for the rest of the time that I was in school. I was just like, there is no way that this guy is going to be right. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be a performer, blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm super proud of myself because I have a job now in music where I get to perform and teach, which I like to do anyway.
0: Yeah, I've talked about a kind of a similar experience where my orchestra director had some teaching methods that were kind of negative reinforcement as opposed to positive reinforcement that Mm -hmm. similarly lit a fire underneath Mm me Mm -hmm. to you know, just kind of propel you forward. You're not always thankful for those moments in time, but they're kind of the ones that you can look back and
1: formative.
0: Yeah. And just be proud of, oh, I could have let that crush me and I used it to propel me forward.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That can be hard to do when you're young.
1: Yeah. And I actually use it as a teaching strategy in that I will never, ever do that to any of my students. You know, my students get to determine their own career path and their own destiny. And I, it's not my job to tell somebody what they should or should not do in terms of their, you know, their ultimate career. Because I feel like that becomes self-evident. You know, you you figure out what you're going to do and then you do it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Your students should be safe in the arms of love. <laughs> 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 they should be wild angels. Free to... Be swinging doors open on Independence Day and free of heart trouble.
1: More, give me more. Free of heart trouble. <laughs> anyway,
0: those were all Martina McBride songs. Just I, I was wondering. Wondering.
1: I wonder if we have any crossover listeners.
0: People are just like, okay, Jackie's gone nuts. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jackie, what was your profound, valuable advice?
0: As I was thinking about it, one of the, I guess, hard truths um, came when I read The Big Leap, which I talked about more toward the start of the podcast. But The Big Leap is essentially about time management and the the importance that you assign to different things. Um, So without getting too much into it, the author says that pretty much anything that we do, is in one of three zones. The zone of apathy, meaning I don't play golf well, but I don't care to play golf well. So who cares? That's the zone of apathy. The zone of excellence, which is where we do the majority of the things that we care about. And then the zone of genius. And we think, oh, LeBron James, he's in the zone of genius at basketball. Mm -hmm. And um, the big leap is the idea of the fact that normal people typically live their everyday to day lives in the zone of excellence. And that if you ever want to be in your zone of genius, you have to act like people in that zone do. And then, regardless of, um, you know, if you ever become LeBron James or Michael Phelps, the activities that you fill your day with are fulfilling because you're pursuing that which is the most important to you. And he uses the metaphor of like, if you went home right now and your washer had overflowed and your whole front room was flooded, you would find the time to clean it up. Right. You would make the time. So when we say, oh, I didn't have time to practice today, or I didn't have time to make reads today or whatever it is, essentially, if that's your dream and that's your goal, you have to treat it like a washer flooding your front room.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I went, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And I was just kind of bopping along. And then I had this, (sighs) of like, how I had not been spending my time. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. the hard truth was kind of in retrospect of what I could have done if I had learned some of the lessons that I know now in my late teens, early 20s.
1: Well, they do say that youth is wasted on the young.
0: (laughs) Totally. And I'm sure everyone... Can relate to some aspect of that but that is a hard truth when you're like oh if i could just talk to baby jackie and tell her what i know now i guess my hard truth is a hindsight's twenty twenty.
1: <laughs> yeah i
0: <laughs> just to, and that's not a martina mcbride song <laughs>
1: there's no traffic in that extra mile right jackie
0: <laughs> so we asked the listeners about their hard truths mm-hmm. and we got some
1: great responses Andrea says, criticism is part of our job. The sooner you learn how to deal with it, the better it will be for your career. True, 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 true.
0: And hard. Making music is such a vulnerable act that it's kind of like, okay, I'm putting myself out there. And then you start and you get this litany of, well, this was sharp and this was rushed and this was that and this was that. I don't blame young students for having a hard time getting used to that, but I completely agree that the sooner you do and just kind of pragmatically acknowledge this is a reality of our field, the better. Mm -hmm. Similarly, Robin Sweden says, sometimes people play or perform better than you and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're bad at what you do.
1: True, true, true. I heard this really great suggestion, and it was like, anytime you say something or think something about someone else, tack on just like me at the end. Hmm. If if you think, wow, that person is such a beautiful performer, you have to say just like me. I love that. Or if it's negative, you still have to say just like me. (laughs) That's a great idea. Hmm. It really humbles you, and also elevates you. You know, we're we're all trying to do the same thing, so it doesn't help to tear people down. Okay. So this is from Jordan, and Jordan says that some advice that he has received is that reads that are too hard do not mean that you have a good or dark tone response and intonation have to be be put before tone.
0: Yes, and well, and just kind of generally, you have to be multidimensional in the way you assess a read. Mm -hmm. And there are some priorities that have to be higher than others.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: If your read doesn't work, that's when God-fearing women get the blues. Oh, no. Hey guys, let me tell you something. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly read subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right. For you, Double Reed Dish listeners can use the code DISH—that's all caps—for 10% off your first order at jennatingle.com.
1: Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their Reed Knives sharpening and overall amazing quality and service in the Double Reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market, filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows, one day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDJENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives.
0: Welcome to Double Read Dish, Mary Ashley Barrett, Professor of Oboe at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Hi. Our standard question is to ask how you first began to play the oboe. How did you start on the instrument?
2: Well, um, that's actually an interesting story. Um, I had been musical from a really early age. I think my mom used to like to say that I came out of the womb singing. Um <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But she likes to say that. Um, <laughs> so I, I started playing piano when I was really, really young. And, um, you know, five years old, was taking lessons and um, singing all the time. And, and I think my parents knew even at that age that I was going to do something musical. They just didn't quite know what. And um, when we moved to Atlanta, when I was in the sixth grade, they had a beginner band. And so my parents said, why don't you play in the band? What do you want to play? And I really wanted to play trombone. And I'm sure my father did not actually say this, but my memory is that he said, oh, gosh, that's really not an instrument for a girl. Maybe play something else. Now, I mean, my father's very liberal, so I can't imagine that's really what he said. But <laughs> my my 11-year-old memory, that's what it was. So uh, I started on the clarinet, and there were four people in my band class. And because I already knew how to read music, my band teacher could see that, they were gonna lose me if they didn't do something to keep my interest. So uh, I think I played clarinet for a couple months and then finally the band teacher pulled me aside and he said, you know, I just don't think clarinet's really the instrument that you should be on. Why don't you think about playing the oboe? We have instruments here, your parents wouldn't have to rent anything. So they had a Linton oboe that was, you know, the bare bones, basic, no low B flat key, no left F key, and we ordered a reed, we ordered a fiber cane reed, it was going to take three weeks for it to come in. So during during those three weeks, my band teacher said, here's the fingering chart, and I want you to go and you learn all your fingering so that you can finger along in band class, and then when your reed comes, we'll put it in and see what it sounds like. So Uh, three weeks later, the reed comes, we're all excited. You know, have have you guys ever played fiber cane reeds? You know, they're just absolutely awful. But (laughs) I was so excited to put that reed in the oboe and and play it. And I mean, it just, of course, sounded horrendous, but it didn't deter me. And that was really the start of, of it all. And, you know, it's just been a love affair since then. Can you talk to us about your
1: journey to being a professional oboist and how you got to where you are today?
2: Sure, um, I really was consumed with music even even back then, even playing those fiber cane reeds. Uh, we, my father taught at the Lovett School, which was a, a private school, it's still there. And they had a wonderful program that provided lessons for students at a discount rate with uh, members of the Atlanta Symphony. And so the band teacher for the high school said, I think, I think we need to get Ashley in some lessons. And so um, they hooked me up. Actually, I studied with um, a lady that played bass clarinet, and her name is Judy. I don't remember what her last name was, sadly. Um, but she was a doubler, and so she was my first teacher. And she really got me started right. You know, I ordered Retools right away from Pat McFarland, and um, they just got me started. On, on that professional track so early. And uh, when I got into high school, they had a Loray oboe there in that high school. And so I was able to play on that instrument for, for quite a long while. And then we moved to Charlotte for the rest of my high school career. And, and I took lessons with the first oboe, Hollis Ullacki in the Charlotte Symphony and played in the youth orchestras. And I just did music. I, I, I that was my whole thing. You know, I studied hard and then I just did music every day, all day. And so I just couldn't imagine not doing music. So um, I attended Carnegie Mellon for the first two years of my undergraduate career. And then my dad uh, decided maybe we should find out how good you really are. Why don't you audition for some of the bigger schools and talk to your teacher and just ask where he might suggest you would audition. And I didn't really want to transfer, but to appease my dad, I said, okay, so I, I talked to Tom Fay, who was the oboe teacher at, at CMU at that time, and he said, hmm, well, that's not a bad idea. Why don't you think about going up to Eastman and and playing for uh, Richard Kilmer and see how that goes? And I, I took the audition and got in and so transferred up there to finish my undergraduate degree and um, then... I took some time off before I started graduate school. I went back down to Charlotte cause I had won a position as a utility oboe down there. So for two seasons, I played with them and then went to Baylor for my masters and then Florida State for my doctorate. And it, it took a while for me to get my, my first official uh, tenure track teaching job cause I had decided that I really wanted to stay in the Southeast. Um, Definitely a southerner through and through and I couldn't stand the brutal cold winters um, up in Rochester was just uh, I just thought that was hell. I could not take all that wind and snow (laughs) so uh, It was really important to me to stay south of the mason-dixon line and east of the mississippi river and as you all know It's difficult to find openings and so it took a while for something Mm -hmm. to come available and you know I was lucky enough when unc greensboro opened Uh, that I had a great day and everything went well and they offered me the job. So I'm starting my 21st year of teaching there. So it's just been fantastic.
0: Did you always know that higher education was the path that you wanted to go down or did that take some experimentation and and thought?
2: You know, at the time, if you'd asked me when I was in school, um, at first I would have said, oh, I want to be a performer all the way. And uh, it became clear to me after doing those two years with the Charlotte Symphony that, you know, it's really hard to find a, a, a playing position where you can earn enough money and, and not have to do other things. Um, and so I decided, well, maybe I should start looking into the teaching route. And... Um, so that's what spurred me to go on back to school and get those two final degrees. It's interesting, though, not too many years ago, I was looking through some old papers. My mom was wanting me to clean out some of my stuff she still had. And I found a piece of paper that uh, had written on it from high school where our band teacher had said, why don't you write down what your career goals are? And I had written down, uh, play in the orchestra and teach college in North Carolina. And I don't remember that at all. But wow, Wow. hit it right smack in the middle. Wow. Yeah. Um,
1: I also took some years off in between degrees. And uh, it also took me a while to find a higher education job after I graduated from my doctorate. And I remember that being very emotionally and mentally difficult. was it difficult for you? And if it was, how did you deal with it? And what advice would you give for those people who are out there dealing with the same thing?
2: Uh, Of course it was difficult because you're, you're anxious to get your life started, you know, and put down some roots. Uh, um, I know for most of us who have gone through the terminal degree, you're moving constantly. It feels like for me, it was every two years I was moving somewhere. And I really longed to have a place where I could just finally put down roots and say, okay, this is home. And, um, this is where I'm going to stay for a long period of time. Uh, it's definitely more than two years. Um, my dad had always raised us to, to believe that you can do anything you want to do. You just have to really work hard at it and you have to be patient. And so I guess I kept that ideal ever in front of me. And, um, both my parents have gone through the th- terminal degrees, and my dad taught in higher education uh, until he retired not too long ago. And so, I had good role models in both my parents, and um, so they were very supportive and encouraging to me um, about just you know keep trying, don't give up, and keeping your feet involved. You know, keeping your your um, playing and going out and doing teaching and uh, staying in that limelight. I think just to keep yourself viable as a candidate would be really important. And remembering that you've got a great network of people that you've been exposed to, and to take advantage of that, you know, contact them and and set up opportunities for you to go and and do some teaching wherever they happen to be. And um, attending conferences and just trying to be as visible as you can in the field, I'm for sure that's really, really critical. Um, As you're trying to navigate the path to get that job because they are few and far between. Although I do think that You know people of my age now. I I was at Florida State The Dean there said you know in the next 10 years there's going to be this big opening the floodgates will open all these people are going to retire and um, There's going to be lots of jobs available and it was true I mean I had to wait five years, but then it happened and I think the same is going to be true. In the next 10 years, you're going to see people of my age getting, getting close to that retirement age. And so there's going to be some more openings available. And, and so, again, yeah, you just have to be patient and, and stay the path, I think. hmm
0: one of your areas of research interest is music by women composers and you have an album called falling still that features works by women composers for oboe exclusively and i would love to hear about um, what inspired you to create this album and why it is important for you to advocate for representation of women composers in your programming and your activities and as an oboist. Mm.
2: You know, one of the things that you have to do when, when you're in higher education is is have some sort of publication, something that's tangible. It's not just you going out and just and performing concerts, although that's a large part of it. But certainly people that are not involved in the arts, they want to see an artifact, something. And so for my school, uh, most of us in the performing field choose to do some type of a recording. And um, I'm not quite sure what that's going to mean for the people that are are entering the profession now because you know CDs seem like they're so passe and it's now more about the digital stuff that you can just get streaming. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to change. And I'm curious to watch watch as that unfolds. But but for me it was is making that CD. And to get funding you have to find something that's unique. That's something different that not everyone is doing. And so I uh UNCG was known as the women's college. It was the the place where the women went, not to Chapel Hill, but they would come to to UNC Greensboro for their training, teacher training. And so there's a history of of supporting women uh, in the educational field at my school. And so that seemed like a natural fit. It's also interesting when you look around at your colleagues, even though there's more and more women coming into the profession, it's still pretty much a male dominated arena. And so I think trying to encourage women composers and giving them some support is so vitally important right now. Um, So I just felt like it was a win-win every way I looked and um, was lucky enough to get the funding to be able to support that project and had a great time putting together that CD. And, you know, hope, hopefully I can get another one out in the next um, four years and see if that can't be a volume two to that, to that start that I made.
0: As a follow-up, I'd be really curious to know if um, in the process of researching the CD, if you discovered any hidden gems or lesser played works that you'd love to make our listeners aware of, anything that's not so commonly played.
2: Well, I I did enjoy the Nancy Galbraith a lot. I don't know how how much that gets played. I think it may have another recording out. Um, I'm not sure about that one. Um, and certainly Alyssa Morris, Everybody's is, is, she's becoming a more of a household name. She's so much fun. Her music to play is, is quirky and interesting and has got um, poignant moments and comedic moments. And you know, I certainly enjoy playing her music quite a bit. You know, there's just not that much that was out there. So when I was doing most of my research, it seemed like actually the Canadian composers were getting far more support from the government to produce their music than I could find here happening here in the United States. And not so surprising when you see every time that cut happens in the United States, it's always the arts that seem to suffer the most compared to anybody else. So, so perhaps that's part of the explanation, but, um, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I would say I found any hidden gems. Um, anytime I play a piece, I just, I try to immerse myself in it. You know, the Emily Doolittle was a lot of fun to play. And um, Chinese music was also fun. So um, I would just encourage everybody to pick something, pick, pick whatever it is that you're, that you're going to be um, excited about and, and energized about and, and push it forward and, and make that be your focus for your, your performing of that year. And if it's a particular person or a, a genre of, of music, let it be that. Um, that'd be my best advice.
1: Do you have advice for women who are coming into the higher education field and men who wish to be allies to women or maybe challenges that you have faced that you would like to um, give us some insight on or address in any way?
2: I think when you, when you first start your job, and this would, would be for anybody, you're always treading carefully because you're not quite sure what's expected of me. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. It was so hard to get this job. Um, And so we tend to be pretty quiet uh, the first, first few years that that we're on the job. And I I teach a class that's really about navigating the tenure track and um, how do you get that first job? And then what kinds of things do you need to make sure that you're doing to keep that job and get through the tenure process? And then after tenure, what's important for you to do? And I, I think that's probably a smart thing to do is to know when you need to just be quiet and watch and, and not get embroiled in a lot of the politics that will happen regardless of, of where you are, whether it's in higher it or, or some other business area. But um, I think it is important to begin learning who, who can be your mentors. It'd be really important to find a mentor And when you have questions, you go and ask them first before you step in something. Maybe you don't want to step in Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, you know, talk through things with them and then don't be afraid to be vocal. There's ways to, to be able to speak up and, and make your opinion or, or your ideas known without looking like you're the young hotshot who thinks they know everything. Um, But I I do think it's important to, to find that middle ground where you're, where you can gain that confidence to be able to speak up. And i I'd like to think that being in the arts, we don't have a lot of that discrimination of men versus women or, you know, the people who've been there for a long time versus the newbies, but that does happen. Um, I, I was never, I've never been scared to say something, but I do make sure that I choose my battles wisely. And I pay attention and notice when there are some faculty members that are, you know, tend to be the ones that are always whining and complaining. And, and um, I watch what, what happens and goes along. So I keep my eyes open. Um, so I guess I would say that to anybody, male or female, that's, that's really important that you just pay attention, that you do have a mentor that you can talk to about things. Um, and for men just to be careful that they're not, they're, they're paying attention to how they address women. Uh, I think a lot of times there are men who, who feel like they're being really diplomatic and, and trying to include us in the conversation. But sometimes we still get belittled. And when is it appropriate for you to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't really think you're expressing yourself the way you intend to, but this is how it comes off. That's a scary thing for a beginning teacher to, to go up to somebody and say that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think if you have a mentor, you can at least sound them out about it and ask them about it. Um, And I also think it's really important that if you're feeling uncomfortable or um, ignored um, that you talk to somebody about it and don't just leave it alone. Not that you have to talk to that person right away, but again, find that, find that one person that's your mentor, your safe person that you can go and talk to about those things and at least let people become aware of the situation. Don't ever feel like you have to go through something by yourself.
0: Switching gears a little bit, um, as someone with a lot of experience now in higher ed, I wonder if you have come up with any strategies or new approaches to um, studio class or read class that through experimentation over the years you've found to be particularly uh, effective?
2: Often what we do at UNC Greensboro is every year you have a different teaching focal point to something maybe new that you want to try. And often mine revolve around things that happen in either studio class or a readmaking class. So last year I tried something different and decided that I wanted to, in an effort to help my students really gain some control over readmaking. Um, I chose a couple of different readmaking texts and or videos and assigned by class section students to those uh, variety of texts and and, um, video channels. And that was their focus for the entire year. And and so the first semester, we worked on wrapping the way those texts suggested and then talking about it and sharing what's different about this way versus the other way. And each student had to come in with their favorite quotes from whatever book they were reading. And we posted those all over the read, uh, read room so that they were there for us to just remind ourselves of what's important when we're in there making reads. And I think the students really enjoyed that. It was interesting to see this, the differences between the di- the styles of read making, And um, the students certainly learned really well how to make reads in that particular person's style. This year... Um, for our rep class, we're going to be focusing on musicality and um, I've picked a couple of different pieces for them to focus on over the two semesters and found three recordings of each piece and have uploaded that onto our um, uh, canvas site and they will be responsible for sitting in front of the score with their pencil and their metronome and, making note of the subtle differences of each performer and where do they change the dynamics or where do they change the articulation or how how does their version differ from the other person's version? And they have to write a little synopsis of, of each performance and then maybe talk about the background of the performer so they learn something about each of those players and maybe the background a little bit of the piece. And then if they had to pick a favorite performance of that work, why would they choose that? And then we'll have a dialogue actually in um, both rep class and then in their private lessons and just asking them, okay, if you're going to play this particular passage of this piece, then how are you going to imbue the same musical gestures that you're hearing these other three superstars play and recording themselves and, and really listening when they think that they're doing something, is it really coming across on the recording? And if they felt like they were, but you don't hear it, then wow, how come those other people are, are making so much more of a difference in their pianos or their fortes. And so it's, it's helping, I hope the students to be critical listeners and to make good critical judgments um, when they're listening to other people play, but then also listening to themselves and, and holding themselves up to that model and figuring out how can I be like that? How can I get myself to, to show that much expression when I'm playing? So that's our goal. We'll see how that goes this year. I'm excited to to unroll that on Friday this week. So
1: that's a wonderful idea. I love it. I might steal it.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I was gonna say, are you currently accepting post grad bassoon students?
1: <laughs> I would love to know um about teaching or learning physical musical concepts like embouchure and vibrato. For me, those can be really tricky to get across.
2: For embouchure, of course, you know, I think the majority of, uh, of, of the students when they walk in the door are biters. And that's the four-letter word that we talk a lot about in the studio. <laughs> biting, no, no biting. Um, and so we do focus on the embouchure certainly and um, probably the number one thing we work on freshman year is just trying to get off that reed and not bite and be on the tip. And it's a challenge because, you know, we all have physiological differences. I have what I call skinny chicken lips. And so I can be (laughs) on that tip and be fine with that. But you have somebody that's got a more full lip line and it's not as easy for them. They're going to have to be in a different place. So we're teaching embouchure and, and replacement, everybody's going to look different. So it's, it's um, a little bit about feel and it's a little bit about listening to the tone. Um, so we start out with, imagine that you have a big straw, like a McDonald's straw, because they make theirs a little bit bigger. and You're going to drink a milkshake. And if you were sucking that milkshake through the straw, it makes your chin flatten out a little bit and your corners are going to come in a little bit, which really makes a, a pretty nice embouchure. And then if you just open your mouth and relax just a tiny bit from that, that's a pretty good embouchure. So I usually start with that. And then um, if that analogy doesn't work, we try other things. If you think about saying the word cue and you exaggerate your lips, you'll also get a pretty decent embouchure with with the chin staying flat. Um, And then I usually get a roll of Scotch tape. It's one of my favorite teaching tools. And I rip off a little piece of that scotch tape and I and I place that tape on the reed. For me, I can have it right where the windows start up at, up at the heart and I don't need to have any more. I could actually probably have less reed than that in my mouth. So we figure out where the reed needs to be on the student. And then I put that piece of tape and I say, okay, you're going to play some long tones and don't let your lips push that tape off. And so that's the way they practice. They have a, a roll of scotch tape when they only do it just for their long tones because otherwise they would hate the teacher and we don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a good way for them to just start to feel where does their mouth need to go. And then developing some, some flexibility exercises, you know, having a reed that's light enough that you could say po, 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 po. And, and as you say the P and your mouth opens, the air goes into the reed and it makes a little peeping sound and just, practicing just on the reed alone. So you don't have the resistance that comes naturally from the instrument getting in the way of what you're trying to do with the mouth. So that's generally where I start. And um, you know it's still it's gonna be something that you'll have to probably keep touching back and back um, often with the student just to be sure that they're still really not biting and staying on the tip. And then you know boy one of the ways that I learned how not to bite was my teacher gave me a reed that that crowed sharp. And I had to play it in tune. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will make you stop biting because <laughs> good, you don't want to be sharp. So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that you can try. But, but I do like that, that milkshake image and then also saying that the letter Q um, just to get that chin flat and to get your mouth open. Can you clarify something for me?
1: Sure, uh, the tape goes on the reed or it goes on the embouchure?
2: On the reed right on the reed. It's just, it's not going to really dull the vibrations of it, but if you stick, stick the upper part of that tape, um, right where the windows in the heart meet for me, for my chicken lips, um, I don't need to have more than that in my mouth. And I, and like I said, I can have a little bit less. So then when you're playing, if you allow that reed to roll in or you, you start to bite your lips or just push that piece of tape right off, uh, you realize, oh, I've just done something.
1: I love it. That's genius.
0: While we're mining your pedagogical expertise, (laughs) um, taking notes, (laughs) I feel like we should rename the podcast to "Pre-Tenured Individuals uh, Mine for Information." Uh, But while we're at it,
2: uh,
0: a lot of things. So the students, you know, have put in all the work on these technical concepts, and a lot of times I find still struggle with issues of self-doubt or letting their nerves get in the way of what they're uh, producing on stage, what they're capable of doing in the practice room. So do you have any um, either teaching strategies or just personal advice for overcoming those mental emotional parts of the music making process?
2: I would say it's really rare for me to have a student that comes in from the get-go and has no nerve issues or self-doubt issues. They all do. We all do. Everybody does. And, you know, even though you can tell your students, well, you know, even the most famous player has these same feelings. It doesn't make them feel any better. It doesn't make those feelings go away. I mean, maybe, okay, I'm not the only one that feels that way, but uh, it still doesn't help me with that. So um, we're lucky enough that we have some Alexander classes here on our campus. And so I usually will suggest that they enroll in one of those classes and just become a little bit more aware of their body and, Um, maybe getting some relaxation techniques from those teachers is really helpful. And then um, I think it's super important to just get everybody up and playing in in your rep classes. I mean, really, that's one of the most wonderful benefits about having a rep class is being able to play for your peers because that's the scariest group of people to play for. Mm -hmm. And if everybody knows every single time they come into rep class, they're going to play something. Even if it's some long tones, it can be something as simple as that but that repetition of knowing that that's always going to happen, then because they do it so often, it becomes not quite so scary. Uh, I think also finding opportunities to take your students out and play in what I call a safe environment or a safe performance spot, take them to some nursing homes or, or um, some facility like that where, well, you know, you could play come to Jesus and whole notes and everybody there is going to be so excited to hear you play mm-hmm. and that, that game helps them gain some confidence. And then, then when, by the time they reach their junior, senior year, you know, getting up and performing for people is not that's not going to be the first time they have to do it. So we have um, an oboe recital every semester and everybody plays something, everybody plays. And that way, again, they've practiced their bowing. they've practiced walking on stage. Um, they invite their parents to come, they invite their friends to come, and then by the time they get to that junior and senior recital, it feels like that's a normal space for them to be in. Um, There's lots of books that, that you can read that talk about performing anxiety or how to think about your music or how to get out of your head and just play, and I think when we're focused so hard on Boy, I'm going to use these four years of my undergraduate degree or however many years you're going to be in graduate school to fix this. And and you're so focused, hyper focused on that. We forget that the real reason we do this is we love playing music. We love expressing what we do through our instrument. And if we can get back to where that joy is and focus on that and, you know, mistakes are going to happen. It's what do you do when a mistake happens? You You don't freak out. Keep going. Be, you know, molto espressivo. And that's what people are going to remember is the beautiful phrase you played, not the wrong note that you played.
1: 100%. You're a very busy person. So (laughs) how do you structure your practicing so that you can get it all in in a day?
2: I am so lucky that I am a morning person. And my sisters would say that I am hugely annoying in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I wake up a
0: member of my tribe.
2: <laughs> I can wake up at six o'clock in the morning and I will jump out of bed and the go button is on and I am ready to go. And so um consequently I will get over at school at eight o'clock, seven thirty, and I'll get my practicing done in the morning before the students are coming and knocking on my door. That's the only way I can really get stuff done. I'm not a night person. I mean I ha- I have a lot of rehearsals at night, but I, I don't practice very well at night. So Um, my only way to be able to get all of that stuff in is to to do it in the morning. And then I also really try to separate my practice time from my read making time because, and I try to do the practicing first because it's so easy to get down that rabbit hole of making reads and all of a sudden all your practice time is gone. And, you know, we just don't have time to get that back during the day Mm -hmm. because... I, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but I set up my beautiful schedule at the beginning of every semester, and I've got this lovely practice times locked out in the morning and, you know, read-making time. And I might have one week the entire semester that my week actually works like that. And the rest mm-hmm. of the time, you know, something happens, or you get added rehearsals, or you've got to go to this concert or this recital, or your time just gets eaten away. So I really do try to protect that morning time. And if, if I don't get up in the morning, it it's, can be a lost day for me if I'm not careful.
0: We already talked a little bit about your CD of music by women composers, but more generally opening it up to anything, orchestral, chamber, solo. What are some of your favorite pieces of repertoire to play?
2: Uh, wow. I mean, I like I like just about everything I play. It's unusual for me to say, oh, I don't like that. I would say the music that I have difficulty with, tends to be stuff that's a little on the minimalistic side where you have a lot of repetition and then maybe one note will change in that pattern and then you keep repeating that for a while. I just have a hard time focusing mentally to play stuff like that. So generally tend to stay away from that kind of music. If I was to say, oh, I was going to put together a recital that had my favorite pieces on it, I would certainly feature some of the English composers. I'm just totally in love with with any of their music, Britton, Gordon Jacob, um, uh, Arthur Bliss, um, just fantastic music and just seems to resonate really a lot with me. Um, And then I really, really love chamber music. I actually was excited to put together um, a women's ensemble, wind ensemble Um, we rehearsed all last year and had a couple of, of concerts and we've got some coming up this year. And um, it was fantastic just working with these women. So it was a woodwind quintet plus saxophone. And, you know, there's not a lot of music written for that particular grouping of, of instruments, but um, we have some wonderful arrangers in the group. So um, we had a, a fantastic time putting together that program in particular. We did some Vivaldi and, uh, from Four Seasons, and we did some Bernstein, uh, sort of a kickoff with the big Bernstein celebrations that are happening all this year. Um, so that was just wonderful. I had a fantastic time doing that. So I would say if I had to pick a, a genre of music, it would probably be chamber music is where my real heart is. Although I do a lot of orchestral playing, uh, throughout the year with Greensboro Symphony. So, um, I feel like those two arenas, my feet are firmly planted.
1: We love to ask this extremely unfair question of a favorite memory of a past performance and if you're willing, maybe an embarrassing memory that happened to you on
2: stage. Um, either or. Either or. or, both. or both. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, it's not too distant past. One of my favorite performances actually was doing the temporal variations, written temporal variations. Um, really had a great time collaborating with my pianist colleague here, um, Inaar Zanmani. And uh, it was just a magical moment. I had a reed that just was doing what I wanted to do. And how often do we ever have that happen? Did you and frame it? And my <laughs> instrument was, was in good shape. And yes you know, so it's getting all the low notes. And I just was so engrossed emotionally in everything that piece demands when you play it. Um, and my, I can hardly remember actually being out there playing. It was one of those times where you're just in the zone and just in that moment. Um, So that was probably one of the most memorable performances I've had. And then, you know, sometimes we can be in a really silly situation um, where it's not highbrow music, but you know, when you have that moment when you just are sitting there and you become overcome with emotion and the tears come because you're thinking, how lucky am I that I get to play an instrument that I love and I'm surrounded with all these wonderful musicians. And we're making this great music, and we have a wonderful audience that's really enjoying what we're doing. And and as silly as it sounds, I was playing with the uh, Charlotte Pops Orchestra. This was gosh, I don't know, it was probably fifteen years ago. Um, and we were playing something silly, you know, Disney thing, Under the Sea. I don't know what it was, but I just got overcome with emotion playing in that in that room that day. And. I don't think we often allow ourselves to do that because we're so busy and it's really hard to quiet your mind and, and allow us again to remember why we do this. Uh, but that was one of those times that was really uh, a silly piece of music, but yet it reminded me of, of how wonderful it is to, to do what I get to do. That's wonderful. An embarrassing moment. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. I don't, I'm sure that I've had plenty of them. Um, and the first one that jumped to my mind when you asked this was a long time ago, It was a learning lesson for me. Um, when I was in governor's school in high school and, um, we had been playing a, a, and, and premiering a, a new piece of music and they hadn't practiced us with how do you go on and off the stage when you, when you don't play every piece, And so, you know, you're supposed to get off quickly because there's another group of people coming in. And so, you know, we finished that piece and we didn't realize that uh, after the audience had clapped, uh, we stood up and we were going to get off the stage because the people had told us, you know, you make sure you don't dawdle. And so the whole woodwind section got up and walked off and it was you know, the clapping wasn't done yet and the conductor nope. come out and take another bow and here he is banging into all of us as we're trying to get off his feet. I love the oh, it's <laughs> a good lesson from that one. That's
0: adorable. What a great image.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course it was the winds that were like, bye, we're out. <laughs>
0: What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours?
2: I would say certainly try to get private lessons if you can afford them. Um, I was so lucky in that uh, both in Atlanta and then when we moved back to Charlotte, there were organizations that helped subsidize lessons. And so I had really, you know, weekly lessons with really, really top notch players and was lucky enough to have a, a good instrument, you know. Um, and so I think that's important to make sure that you've got the equipment that's gonna help you the most when you're at those growth moments. And and to me, uh, you know, we have hills and valleys of when those growth moments happen, um, but certainly high school is one of those times that you can really have a lot of growth and sort of set that foundation. So I would say, get a teacher, get good equipment, um, be mindful of how you practice. Uh, I hate to say it, but I was I was not a person that was practicing two and three hours every day when I was in high school. I just didn't do that. I, I had too many other things. I was also really uh, academically gifted and um, had a lot of homework and, and so I spent a lot of time studying and writing papers and that kinds of thing. But you know if you can just have your mouth on that instrument, however much you can do every day. but I think having that repetition of on a daily routine practicing. I think is really important. And boy, I wish I had spent a lot more time on scales when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not my favorite thing to do. And so consequently, I, I work on, I'm trying to make up for all of that I didn't do still today. I'm still trying to make that up. I am so bad. And it sounds weird that I would say this, but I'm not very good at playing forked F. <laughs> I think that For high school kids, they would be really good at, at playing forked F because, you know, that's the first F fingering we all learn. Um, but I had, I had teachers there like, no, thou shalt never use work deaf. And so I was much better at using left deaf. And so when I have passages that I have to use forked deaf, I have to work really hard at that. So I think being able to, to spend that extra time on your scales and knowing those alternate fingerings is really helpful if you can do that at an earlier age. Um, what else would I say? Um, try to try to take advantage of every performing opportunity you can. and then. Be a nice person, because, yes, as you're marching towards a career, whether as a performer or as a teacher, um, you're going to meet lots of different people, and some are going to be nice and some aren't, but it's not always so much about how do you play. That's a part of it, but a big other part of it is, do you get along with other people? Do they like being around you? Are you a team player? Um, Do you participate? You know, is there, is there a give and take and it's not my way or the highway? Uh, you know, are you open to new ideas? That kind of stuff I think is really, really important.
1: That's great advice.
2: Ashley, it has been so wonderful to
1: talk to you today. I'd love to close by asking what kind of upcoming performances you have you're excited about and where our listeners can follow up with you on the internet, should they choose?
2: Sure. Um, I start rehearsals on, let's see, what is today, Tuesday. Uh, Thursday, um, there's a, a a volunteer chamber orchestra that is going to be doing some concerts this weekend to raise money for immigrant families. Really, with the intent of trying to to help these families that have been torn apart the last couple of months by our government and helping them reunite. And uh, wow, we're going to get to do the polchinella Suite, which oh, is one cool. of the that we all practice a lot. And this is going to be my first time to perform it, so I'm super excited about that. And um, then we've got um, the Greensboro Symphony season starts up in September. And so we're opening with a bunch of Bernstein, we're gonna be doing my side story. And so I'm really excited about that. And then um, a couple of chamber, other chamber things that are happening, I get to do the Leffler. Um, that'll be in February. So yeah, lots of lots of really wonderful music on the horizon, but first and foremost is gonna be that Pulcinella. You can Google my name and I'm sure UNC Greensboro will pop up. Um, I am a email nut and anybody that wants to send me an email, my email address can be found there at UNC Greensboro. Um, but it's really easy to remember Ma Barrett, M-A Barrett. And I spell Barrett just like the oboe method. Oh, it's, it's kismet. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Barrett at UNCG.edu. And b- people send me an email. I, I'm, I'm usually on it, well, I'll say for sure within 24 hours, but it's usually quicker than that. Um, so that's probably the best way to get a hold of me or find out what's going on uh, in my neck of the woods. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The time has come for me to close this
1: episode.
0: <laughs> so can you believe that next episode is our two year anniversary? I, I
1: honestly can't. I'm so proud of us. And we
0: are bringing the heat. You're not even going to be able to handle our two year anniversary guest. Who is it? Galit, drumroll, please.
1: Milan Turkovich. O-M-G. You're not going to want to miss this one. No. Uh, You can always find us on our social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can email us at double at gmail.com. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade.
0: Go listen to Martina McBride.
1: (laughs) And make (laughs) reads. I'm so glad I mentioned that. (laughs)